Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. The past few days when I've been at that window upstairs, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we'd call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. I've spoken of the Shining City all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with pre-ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. And how stands the city on this winter night? More prosperous, more secure, and happier than it was eight years ago. But more than that, after 200 years, two centuries, she still stands strong and true on the granite ridge, and her glow is held steady no matter what storm. And she's still a beacon, still a magnet for all who must have freedom. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of American History 2. I am Mark McClay, and still, after all these episodes, somehow, I'm still joined by Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mark, yes. Who who knew that none of us would, or neither of us would rage quit at some point <laughs> between episode one and episode two, uh, and finally get to episode 50? It's quite a landmark. Uh, I never thought we'd get here. Well, I actually still and have still audio... Yeah, I was going to say, I still have audio of you in the middle of episode one having a mini breakdown about how you can't do this. And so I plan to release that on like a special podcast at some point in the future. That would definitely cause me to rage quit. <laughs> yeah. uh, so yes, episode 50. Uh, I think it's faintly appropriate that we can, as we've reached for, what for us is the exceptional mark of 50 episodes, we're examining the contentious and contested topic of American exceptionalism. For some of our listeners, this might be quite a familiar phrase to you. For others, it might not be so familiar. Hopefully, this episode will offer some insights into the, the meaning, the history, and the significance of the idea of American exceptionalism. In brief, the idea that the United States was created and has evolved in a unique way, standing apart from the rest of the world, representing some kind of ideal and different form of democratic society. 
but more on, on definitional terms uh, in a moment. Uh, but first, we should introduce our expert guest, uh, who's going to help us discuss and understand uh, American exceptionalism. We're delighted to welcome Hilda Restad. Uh, so, Hilda, welcome, and could you give us just a minute on yourself and your research? Thank you, guys. It is so nice to be invited uh, to talk about American exceptionalism, which I, I feel like I'm alone standing in a void screaming about this this concept. <laughs> so it's nice when historians invite you to talk about your special interest. So I'm an associate professor at a small private college in Oslo, Norway. Um, my PhD is from the University of Virginia, where I wrote on American exceptionalism and how it has influenced U.S. foreign policy. And out of that, I published a book with Routledge called American Exceptionalism, an idea that made the nation and remade the world. Very impressive. Oh, can I, I, yes, can yes, I also go. say something? I'm also yes. the co-host of a podcast. I'm sorry, guys, to advertise a podcast oh, on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's not seemly, but uh, it's a podcast uh, called Ceasefire, which is not on American history, so we're not competing. It's on American politics. Yes, and it's very good. Yes. I listened to the, the special on the royal wedding. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would heartily recommend all of our listeners to go and find Ceasefire and listen to it, because it's great. Yes. Thanks, and guys. I, I also just very much enjoyed, as Hilda was telling us her book title, she had to glance at her book to remind her name, what the name so, of the book was. So, so that's a little embarrassing. <laughs> so, to start us off then on our discussion of American exceptionalism. So why does this idea that the United States has this sort of unique, exceptional history and, and even place in the world still exert such, you know, such a hold? I mean, it's just a term you know of, you, everyone's heard of, you know, sort of, why does it have a hold over so many imaginations, whether it be politicians, academics, pundits, military leaders, and so on? Oh, I think it's because it's such a powerful idea. Um, if you have an idea about your nation as being special in world history, which is, kind of, is, which is something that American exceptionalism suggests, then it implies that the people of this nation is also special. And by special, I think it's not meant different. I think the meaning of special or exceptional is superior. And that is a very attractive notion um, to people and politicians alike. Uh, so it's it's something a bit even stronger than patriotism. I think it's a kind of nationalism. And it's very attractive uh, to people. It's very attractive to politicians because it is a powerful rhetorical tool uh, to create support for your policies. Do you think there's, there are fundamental differences between the idea of American exceptionalism and other exceptionalisms that have existed? British imperial superiority... French exceptionalism, all that kind of thing. Are there fundamental differences between the American version and other versions? So I'm so glad that you asked that because uh, I get in so much trouble uh, researching American exceptionalism because there's always in uh, people always assume that I'm endorsing the concept. And <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm, I'm just trying to research it. So uh, saying that American exceptionalism is an idea or identity or narrative does not mean that I'm saying that the United States is special. That's the first thing. I'm just saying this is how Americans view themselves and have viewed themselves through history. So it's a understanding this, this idea is important. As Americans have viewed themselves as exceptional, so has other peoples and other nations in history, as you say, 
Brits, the French, the Chinese, the Turks, or the Ottomans. This is not uh, a new phenomenon. And trying to argue that American exceptionalism is more exceptional than other kinds of exceptionalism is itself is itself sort of buying into American exceptionalism. Mm. If you follow that sentence. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, <laughs> so no, I don't think there's anything exceptional about American exceptionalism. And it is not exceptional to think that you're exceptional. It's just that right now in this point in history, it's the United States that is the greatest power. Uh, and that is getting to act out this identity more than other states can at the moment. Mm-hmm. So where does it, the, ter- the, the specific term American exceptionalism, can you, is there, have, can have you or other researchers been able to identify when is that term first used and who uses it and why is it deployed and what provokes it? Where does it come from? Historians ask such good questions. <laughs> this, is, this is perfect because, um, There has been some critiques of the study of American exceptionalism saying, but if you go back and look at, you know, papers or or written record records or whatever it is, you don't find the term American exceptionalism, right? Nobody was saying, nobody was using the words American exceptionalism in the U.S. in the 1800s. But the notion, the idea, the understanding of being exceptional uh, comes from before the United States was a country, it comes with comes with the Puritans, comes with with the uh, settlers. But the the concept, the word itself, is was perhaps what you're asking about. That uh, starts in the early 20th century, with as far as I've been able to tell, Marxist writers who are using the term not, not American exceptionalism, not as the U.S. being superior, obviously, but as being an exception to the the, the laws of history that Marxism reveals, right, that the U.S. Uh, should be become a socialist country, but it isn't. Why is that? Uh, so that is the way that it is. the term is first used in modern American discourse. Uh, but that is not the way that term was used before or after, which makes it a little bit complicated. But they sort of bring that term into the, the discourse, and then other people pick it up. Yes, I mean, that's really interesting that you've given this full answer and uh, with a lot of different definitions, one way back in the 1700s, then you've gone to the start in the 1800s. Now, I, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on American exceptionalism, but I always associated it in my head. If you'd asked me, associate it with something, I would have said manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's sort of interesting exactly. that, that, that that wasn't the first thing you go to. So, I mean, there's so many different strands that this is coming out of. No, so that's what I'm trying to say, that the the actual term American exceptionalism, I think you find in the early 20th century, but the idea and the the self-understanding is from before the U.S. was a country. And I think, uh, as I write in my book, that Manifest Destiny is the sort of 1800s version Mm -hmm. uh, of that understanding that starts uh, much earlier, actually in the 1600s. But it's, I mean, it's, but it's interesting with these kind of like terms we associate with the United States, American exceptionalism, national security, all of these kind of things. I mean, national, there's, I mean, there's another national security. No one really uses that term in the way we use it now in the 19th century. Thomas Jefferson doesn't talk about that, but they're right. talking about national security is the way we yes. understand it. You have to, yeah, finding, finding that out. So, Hilda, you mentioned uh, just a moment ago the, the Puritans and ideas of exceptionalism coming from that era of the kind of the 17th century in American history. Can we look further back into, into American history and see ideas of exceptionalism, even though it's not called that 
So, for example, it's often said, although just as often disputed, that John Winthrop's 1630 address, a model of Christian charity, most famous for the idea that the colony he was heading to was going to be a city on a hill, uh, is a route for American exceptionalism. But, but is this really true? And is it really that easy or useful to draw a line between someone like Winthrop many hundreds of years ago and the 20th century? Right. So a very excellent point. Uh, and I think uh, just put that way, I think the answer is obviously no. But I think that Winthrop represents um, a way of thinking about the new world that wasn't just his. Uh, that um, various religious communities were saw the new world as a kind of promised land and used biblical references and had high hopes for this this new place that had miraculously been discovered at this point in world history when things were going so badly uh, in your uh, <clears throat> Not your home country, but your general region. <laughs> Sorry, about that, Sorry about that, Scottish people. No, it's um, fine. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, we were just as involved in all the bad stuff that went on in North America <laughs> as anyone else. So, yes. Um, but so I think George Winthrop is famous uh, because he was picked up later and used. Uh, particularly, actually, probably by John F. Kennedy, who who found, used that address. But at, in his time, I don't believe that historians have been have been able to ascertain whether his address, as it's often called, was a speech that was public or if it was just a written discourse. Um, nobody knows. Um, so we don't know what kind of impact, if any, it had that specific address had uh, in among his contemporaries. But we do know that that this idea uh, was very common, as as has been documented, um, and that this sort of religious strain, the pre-republic religious strain, was quite powerful and was picked up again and again and used in rhetoric such as the Manifest Destiny rhetoric, and then uh, such as in Cold War rhetoric uh, by presidents such as John F. Kennedy. So it's both very powerful and at the same time, not necessarily in terms of John Winthrop's address, particularly important. Yeah. I was I was wondering, so it's to sort of kick ahead again to to the manifest destiny element of what I was talking about, and I, I was just wondering how much, and this might this might relate to even into later times as well. How much American exceptionalism ever gets used as a sort of excuse to do things that otherwise are kind of hard to excuse, like you know, for example, you know. You know, claiming a continent where there were already people was there. How how much is is American exceptionalism used to justify doing that? Or even if we kick kick forward to the Spanish American War, you know, basically kicking all other European powers out of America's continent because it's a special nation. That how much is it used as an excuse, basically, to do things that otherwise don't really have moral justifications? So actually, I think that's almost a philosophical question. Mm-hmm. Be- because how do you know if, to what degree are people believing this and have this belief ingrained in their being and therefore that formulates their, their interests and that formulates or decides how they formulate themselves? And to what, to what degree is it a cynical ploy by politicians to get people to support their, their policies, which is almost the debate a little bit between constructivist theory and realist theory in, in international relations as well. Uh, and I think, I, 
I don't think there's reason to doubt that these ideas were very powerful and people believed them. If I mean, look at Thomas Jefferson's writings on his empire of, for liberty and in how he was talking about Native Americans, for example. I don't now. Thomas Jefferson was a complex character. Mm. Uh, I did good things and bad things, but I don't think... Unfortunately, unfortunately, nobody's written many books about him, so we'll never really understand (laughs) We'll never understand (laughs) him. He's an obscure figure. The mysterious Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) He's just the obscure figure who founded my university. Um, (laughs) But he was right... So he was talking about Native Americans uh, and using... Uh, you know, natural law and and these images about how the white settlers were, you know, sort of there on on behalf of, if not God, then nature, because they would would actually cultivate the land, they would be better stewards of the land. And if Native Americans couldn't sort of reform themselves to be good stewards of the land, then they didn't deserve to be on it. And so I don't think he, I'm sure he believed that. I'm sure he thought that white settlers would be morally better stewards of this land and that they were on a mission and their mission was just, but it had these terrible consequences, right? So there's a, there's a nuance in terms of understanding that people might believe something, even though it is also in a sense cynical. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. mean that politicians can't abuse that mm-hmm. uh, if they're smart enough, because they certainly can and they certainly have. Um, but just Dismissing ideas and identity as sort of mere rhetoric, I think, is a little can be a little bit too simplistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you you mentioned there with Jefferson um, the the role of religion um, and how much is American exceptionalism linked to the notion of the United States being founded and evolving as a Christian nation, sort of a significant component of this. Um, and I'm guessing Jefferson wouldn't be the best example here because he was he not a deist, but like just as it evolved in later dates, how important was that Christian ideal to it? So this is I'm so fascinated by this this topic because as a European who comes from a Christian country, Norway, but with a sort of quite secular political reality, it's weird to come to a so-called secular country with such a religious uh, political reality, right? So it, it's, 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 it's a weird mirror, mirror, uh, sort of mirroring reality because the U S of course was founded as a secular country, but obviously was founded by white Protestant men. Right. And they had a particular idea about what the United States was and what it should become and how, what role religion should play. And religion was always super, very important in the United States, even though you weren't supposed to have a a state church or a state religion. So I think it has been very important. Um, and actually not to be controversial, but I think when Republicans say that the U S was founded as a Christian country, they're not necessarily wrong because it was founded by white Protestant men who had very strong opinions on religion and very strong opinions on other religions. Uh, even though they didn't have a state church or state religion, right. Um, so I think you can't underestimate the role of religion in the development of of, uh, of American politics and society. Is there are there dangers in using a, a term? Because you know, at the start we were talking about you know people thinking that you believe in the specialness of America that you can if you're somehow supporting the idea of exceptionalism you think America is exceptional. 
are there are there dangers in using a term like American exceptionalism? Should we shy away from it? Is it just too loaded, unwieldy, a little too imprecise at times? Sound like my PhD advisor, Melvin. <laughs> <laughs> Given that your PhD advisor was Melvin Leffler, I'm going to take that as a compliment, actually. Uh, so is now it, you see but, how stupid I was who didn't follow their advice. Well, no, uh, I, think, uh, I think things have turned out well. Uh, so, but do you think it's just too imprecise and too unwieldy to offer insights into the development of the United States? Or, as I, as I think you might answer, it does still have a great deal of utility and explanatory power in understanding the United States? Well, this was actually, this is exactly the conversation I had with with one of my uh, PhD advisors. His name is Michael Smith. He's a political scientist at University of Virginia. And, and he said, I don't like that term. And people abuse that term. And what are we really gaining by using that term? But my, I came to the conclusion that because so many people use it, uh, journalists, politicians, historians, etc., that it's not necessarily helpful to come up with yet another term. Uh, to try to capture what is certainly a very real sense of self or identity or collective narrative that Amer- that you find uh, in American history. So th- there is something there. What are you going to call it? Uh, a lot of people call it American exceptionalism. And so rather than, oh, what was the term I was supposed to use instead? Singularity? No. Something like, are you really going to come up with another term? Mm-hmm. Um, in a, in a field of already a lot of terms, missionary, exemplary, you know, all these things, I'm not, I just didn't want to add to the word soup, Mm -hmm. but I understand what you're saying. Uh No, I think, I think uh, everyone everywhere should be forever grateful for, you know, adding to the word soup. Uh, It's one of my (laughs) biggest beefs with scholarship everywhere. So and political it, scientists love to come up with new words and concepts. And yes, I just exactly. If you've ever came up with the word neoliberal, I will hunt them down and I will hang them from the need of a metaphorical branch. But if I, <laughs> if I could just Scottish inter- justice. If I could interject for, for a moment, actually, but I think that's a really good point about the way we use these terms, because I find that, that that national security is such a is such a com- capacious term. It can be used to cover so many things. You know, you think, oh, well, what really are we talking about? Is this national security? But what else are we going to call it? What else? Are, what other terms are we going to use? You know, because it, you know, it means certain things, certain people at certain times, but it's still a term with a, a great deal of utility. That's a very long-winded way of saying, yes, I agree. Uh, Mark, also, sorry. you want people to find you when they Google the terms that people use. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean... I actually kind of want to, I want to ground it in an example then. And I was reading something you sent us and I was wondering if you could talk a wee bit about Henry Luce and, and how, how he figures and how you conceive the term American exceptionalism. Um, okay, historians, let's go back to 1941. <laughs> uh, Henry Luce and this, this uh, American century that he wrote about when he was trying to argue for U.S. entry into World War II first, but really uh, sort of U.S. presence in international relations more permanently, uh, because, of course, there was a debate about whether the U.S. should involve itself in World War II, not uh, incidentally involving a committee called the America First Committee, which was arguing against U.S. intervention in World War II, but we can circle back to that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is really interesting to me is that Henry Luce was arguing for what became the, really what the U.S. founded, which was the 
liberal international order, which is now on everyone's lips because as we have figured out, the current president does does not seem to endorse uh, the American century or the liberal international order. He seems to be going against Henry Luce, I guess, in a way we can say, uh, which is shocking in itself because he would be the first president since 1941 to do so. So, Hilda, given that, you know, obviously Luce wins out and uh, America gets into World War II and then after World War II is, is now the world's biggest superpower and is very much interested in the rest of the world. Um, I'm guessing that that very much means external observers have more of a stake or more of an interest in this idea of American exceptionalism. So is it is it tended to be viewed by external observers as a, as a positive or a negative? My impression, being some an external person who, who has studied this, is that it is, from a European perspective, the idea of American exceptionalism is viewed negatively because it's these silly, arrogant Americans who are taking themselves too seriously and telling themselves these fabulous lies. But the, the fact that the U.S. is engaged in... Uh, international security politics af- after World War II in the way that it is, is of course uh, a good thing for European American allies. So th- there's a little bit of a disconnect there maybe. Um, but then there's also that brand of America admirers, right? I think especially Britain seems to export sort of a couple of America admirers every year who become uh, commentators in, uh, in American <laughs> media and academia. <laughs> it's my, it's my uh, goal in life. It's my goal. Yeah. In life right. So you may, yeah. you may end up on Fox news yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so there, there's also the admirers who buy into, I think, uh, the idea of American exceptionalism and, and support it and, and promote it. Uh, so there's, there are different camps here. So, I mean, we've talked about the strength, of American exceptionalism and you know I just mentioned this sort of loose vision wins out but how are there particular points in American American history and recent American history even where you know Trump aside that American exceptionalism has been challenged that it has been questioned by even American people themselves yes right so um I'm going to be clear and repeat myself because people tend to misunderstand this often. Um, The idea that the United States is exceptional, meaning superior, uh, I think has been a very strong idea in American history and has had strong effects on how the U.S. deals with the rest of the world. Um, That does not mean that there has not been strong reaction to that at times in U.S. history. So, for example... In the late 1800s, um, there was a big debate about how, you know, should this exceptional country, the United States, deal with these other great powers in the world now that we're becoming a great power ourselves? And this was a particular in relation to the Spanish Empire uh, and whether, you know, the U.S. should enter into a war with the Spanish Empire over Cuba. And of course it did. It was the War of uh, 1898. And it landed the U.S. actual colonies real colonies, which then turned out to become this debate about what kind of country are we if we have colonies? Are we exceptional? Are we the nation we thought we were? Um, And there was a a huge anti-imperialist or anti-interventionist camp that I think was talking about what you were referring to, Mark, which is trying to critique this idea and what it leads to. Uh, And of course, um, 
And this brings us also to contemporary era. The debate over uh, whether the U.S. should enter into World War I and World War II featured the now famous slogan, America first. Um, and as far as uh, we've been able to figure out, the first president who used the, the, the term and slogan America first was actually Woodrow Wilson uh, in 1916 when he was telling uh, American voters in the election of 1916 that I have kept us out of war. I have put America first. And then that was picked up again by the America First Committee in 1940, when they were arguing against U.S. participation in yet another world war uh, and saying that this is not what the United States is about and we won't be able to stay true to ourselves if we keep engaging in the corrupt politics of the old world powers. Um, but it is, it, to me, and this was something, I was at a history conference recently at the University of Virginia that was about America First, where uh, historian Melvin Leffler said that he was surprised. He was surprised and shocked when D Donald Trump started using the term America first, because as anyone who studied a little bit of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. history knows, that is a term that is associated with those who lost out, those who lost, were on the losing side of history. Uh, it's associated with anti-Semitism and being somewhat uh, perhaps pro-Hitler. So it's not something that you would assume that people would want to be associated with. But it's a sign of our times then when a U.S. presidential candidate used, not only uses the term America first to the shock and horror of all historians, but wins. Wins on the term, on the slogan America first, which uh, used to be known as the committee that was against U.S. Uh, intervention in World War II, which pretty much everyone agrees was probably a good thing. Do you, do you think that uh, I mean thinking about the kind of the, the way in which ideas of exceptionalism and superiority have kind of are influencing American foreign policy, you know, being critiqued but also supporting certain certain activities? Do you think that the way that the Cold War ends and what happens in the nineteen nineties does do you think that reinforces a sense of the triumphalism in some quarters at the end of the, the Cold War? Does that reinforce a sense of ex exceptionalism in certain quarters in the United States? Yes. And it has, I think, terrible, terrible consequences, actually. Uh, because the, um, the way that I look at American exceptionalism is um, building on, on other scholars. It's a sort of a, there's sort of three ideas. One is that the U.S. is superior. The other is that because of the superiority, the U.S. has a special sort of mission in world history. And the third is that the U S is so special. It's not going to succumb to the laws of history and become a, an empire and then fall. It's, it's never going to fall. It's just going to rise. And unfortunately the end of the cold war is the final verification of that third idea that the U S fools the cycles of history and that it becomes this huge empire after world war II. And then it just keeps growing to the point where it's the only, it's the hegemon in 1989, 1991, it's the hegemon. The Soviet Union collapses. It's the only uh, great power standing. And that proves to, it, it proves American exceptionalism, especially this third idea. And this thesis of the end of history by Francis Fukuyama is, is that. It's the articulation of that. And it gives it, I think, produces a sense of hubris and 
blindness to the rest of the world that is just breathtaking. And it has terrible consequences, such as the reinforcing of the most, um, what is a, a, a good word to use here? The most nationalist sort of parts of American exceptionalism mm -hmm. that fuels the U.S. through the 90s. Uh, and then I think that you see come into full bloom in the war on terror. Uh, where George W. Bush uses all of these terms, um, all of this imagery that, that is very familiar to those who study American exceptionalism and casts the U.S. as the absolute, the absolute moral force for good in the world and in world history and just really casts the U.S. in this really familiar role if you study American exceptionalism and how it <laughs> uh, affects U.S. foreign policy, but in a very, very simplistic way. That is, I would argue, entirely unhelpful and counterproductive, counterproductive in the war on terror and has led to, uh, in among other things, the terrible situation we are in in the Middle East today. And to, just to pick up on the, I mean, you talked about uh, the, about these kind of the, you know, the three kind of underlying ideas of, you know, the American, you know, mission in the world and everything. To, to clarify for listeners, my understanding, and you'll correct me on this, please, if I'm wrong, but they're along the lines of, opposing evil, evil in the broadest sense of the term, promoting liberalism, I think, and promoting international organizations. Was it Walter Russell Mead that came up with that, or am I getting that completely wrong? Well, it's, um, I, so that's a very sort of post-World War II kind of, version yeah. of that, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's fair. Um, but, so my sort of three-part definition, you goes back to before the U.S. was founded, yeah. and you find these ideas again and again. My main, um, my main argument in my book is that these, these three ideas that make up American exceptionalism has always inspired the U.S. to be quite active uh, in foreign policy, quite active internationally, um, just in different ways. Um, because the U.S. has always thought it had to play some sort of special role, like you say, oppose evil in its various forms. In the 1800s, the version of that, of opposing evil, was opposing the evil Spanish Empire, was opposing the British Empire, was taking over the North American continent so that the good guys, the white American settlers, could uh, take over and civilize that part of the world. Is, is the, uh, so coming from that, though, okay, I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested by this point of the kind of the, the almost the opposition to you know, what American exceptionalism stands against, and in the kind of in the 19th century, is we talked about religion before, is kind of Catholicism and other things. Is that another force which kind of the United States is standing against? Perhaps we can see in a way that you know the Trump administration makes a very strong position against against Islam as a, as a religious force. Yes. So there's always been the other, um, uh, whether they be Native Americans or, or other kinds of religion. And in, in the beginning, that was uh, uh, Catholicism or, or for the Puritans, you know, heretical versions of, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Anyone but who yes, wasn't a Puritan. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Catholicism, um, uh, Judaism, obviously, um, and I, I think today the role that is being played is that's, that's where Islam comes in and Islamophobia, uh, does the work that has been done by other religions and, and anti-sentiment before. I think that's quite right. 
I was just wondering, in terms of recent history, sort of looking back over the past 50 years, I mean, in terms of partisan politics, do are Republicans or Democrats more engaged with, like, you know, sort of the presidents at least, you know, more, more engaged with espousing American exceptionalism? Or do they just do it in a different way? Like, will they stress different aspects of American exceptionalism, but they all buy into it? So I think that kind of uh, it's it kind of goes back to your question about whether do they really believe this or are they just using it cynically uh, and do they use it cynically in different ways? Um, but I think if you look at the span of the 20th century, um, perhaps the greatest sort of rhetorical communicators of American exceptionalism uh, of the presidents, I would say, have been Woodrow Wilson, um, Franklin Roosevelt, JFK, um, and Ronald Reagan. But at the towards the end of the 20th century, there was a shift, uh, going back to your favorite term, Malcolm, and the, how the parties dealt with national security. And after the 70s, in the 70s and 80s, there were, the Democratic Party was seen as very weak, right, on national security. And so there was a different way of talking about what it is that makes America great, you know, might versus right and all these things, going back to Jimmy Carter. Um, but what's really, really fascinating to me is how, because no president ever used the term American exceptionalism. Like Ronald Reagan was perhaps the greatest orator of American exceptionalism, but he never used that term. He talked about the shining city on a hill. Yep. Um, but then with the first black American president and presidential candidate of one of the two major parties, all of a sudden the other party, the Republican party becomes very concerned with this issue of whether one believes, really believes in American exceptionalism. It's a curious timing. Um, and in fact, the, 12, the eight years of Obama were the eight years where that term was used all the time. It wasn't really used before. And used in a way where one party was actually kind of using it against the other party to accuse it of not, of not believing in American exceptionalism. If you remember in 2012... Mitt Romney's campaign platform was, I believe in American exceptionalism and Barack Obama don't. So that's why he can't be president. Yeah. It was incredibly fascinating um, to follow. But the consequence of that was that Barack Obama is the president who has used that term the most mm -hmm. and who has been perhaps most explicit mm -hmm. to the point of being embarrassing in how he communicates how much he believes in American exceptionalism. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Did Obama ever, like, you know, because that's what I was thinking, that he, he the, the Democrats at this point in history surely use American exceptionalism, I would have thought, as a way, well, look at, we are the melting pot nation, that's what makes us exceptional. And during the Obama presidency, there's a very obvious figure at the head of that. So when they talk about American exceptionalism, and you, and you might hear that, you know, like as we look at the midterms this year, is, you know, projecting America as exceptional because, look, we're a nation of immigrants, we're all different colors and everything. And whereas the Republicans will stress the more exceptional and, you know, in a national security way or something. Yes, but that didn't used to be the case. Yeah. Ronald Reagan yeah. was also, you know, a great communicator of the, di of the diversity yeah. of, of the American Republic and of how important immigration was. Uh, so Republicans too used to talk about America being exceptional as a land of immigrants. I mean, Republicans, lots of Republicans are, you know, sons and grandsons of, of, of immigrants. 
that is a very recent change. Um, and that is one of the many things, one of the many, 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 many things that is surprising and shocking about Donald Trump uh, being a candidate and a successful candidate is that the way he talks about issues that interface with American exceptionalism is completely opposite to the way Republicans used to talk about it. He, he doesn't, he said in, okay, so I just explained to you how the eight years of Barack Obama was the Republican party accusing Barack Obama of not believing in American exceptionalism. Then in 2015, Donald Trump actually says the words, I don't believe in American exceptionalism. And nobody cares. Nobody in the Republican party cares. It's a staggering shift. Um, and it's, I still can't explain <laughs> and, what is and, happening. So do you not think saying the words America first, like while I get what you were saying earlier, but is that not also in some way an expression of American exceptionalism, just maybe a differently defined version of it? Because just the term doesn't conjure up, you know, a lack of nationalism or a lack of thinking America special. I mean, it almost conjures up, a, you know, well, we're real special, so we will put ourselves first. Yes. So I guess the way that Donald Trump defines America first is in a very materialist way. So it's not about spreading American ideals, which has been hugely significant for all other American presidents. Um, and which has been this part of American exceptionalism thinking we are, we know, we have the best institutions. We have the best ideals and values. We should export them. Uh, not so with Donald Trump. I think the way he defines American exceptionalism in America first is only if we're the richest country that make all other countries pay money to us, are we exceptional? It means being on top of the list of winning economically. So it's a sort of very materialist definition. And I, th I think that was what he mean by both terms, but it is staggering that the way the America first platform, the for America first foreign policy platform is a foreign policy platform that all other Republican presidents have rejected and all other democratic presidents, I'm talking now since world war II have rejected. So, so it is truly shocking. So to try and draw things to a close, because this gives a really you know good segue into kind of some kind of concluding discussion. I mean, re really, where are we now regarding American exceptionalism? You know, is it the is it the end of exceptionalism? Is it in the kind of like zero sum game world of Donald Trump? Is it changing? Is it mutating? Is it the same as it ever was? I mean, where? I mean, I I, I have no answers to this, and you. know, where are we now regarding this? So I don't know where we're going. So I could be wrong. I was certainly wrong in 2016. So uh, we, you were the only one. You were the only one. one. Everyone. I was Everyone. the only one, yes. But when you, this is where historians become useful, which I mean, you're always useful, but this is <laughs> where you're particularly useful because when you go back and look at uh, crises in American history, there have been many. Many, many crises, and especially the 1970s to me seem like a useful parallel because it was a, a decade of economic crisis. It was a decade of foreign policy blunders. It was a decade of um, and a, a crisis in American democracy. But then, you know, after that came Ronald Reagan and eight years of shining city on a hill. 
So, and what actually Obama said this, Obama said, what makes the United States exceptional is not that it's best at everything. It's just that it has this unique ability to adapt and update itself. So if after Trump comes someone much better, who, uh, if the Trump era comes to a satisfying uh, close that is in accordance with democratic norms and laws, then there, I think you could easily build a narrative of, you know, this was a crisis, we were tested, but we passed, and now we are going to rebuild and yet again come out of this stronger and better. And just before we close then, finally, I wonder, do you have a favorite from your research, a sort of favorite anecdote of someone using American exceptionalism? Or is that a historian's question? <laughs> um, I think my favorite, well... It's quite recent then because after um, the Republicans made such a big deal of American exceptionalism during the Obama years, it was, re- it, was tr- it was kind of funny to watch the Republican candidates in 2015, uh, 2016 try to, because uh, nobody took Donald Trump seriously in 2015, try to be the candidate that believed the most in American exceptionalism. And I always found it kind of hilarious, especially to watch Marco Rubio, who was trying to be the exceptionalist candidate of 2015, 2016. And he took it so seriously and no one cared. And it was, it was, it was, I I thought it was funny at the time. Now it's a little bit sad because I would have taken Marco Rubio over Donald Trump any day. Um, But he was, he was very, he was very earnest in his cynical abuse of American exceptionalism, if I can put it that way, in his candidacy. Earnest and cynical abuse. <laughs> that sounds like, <laughs> oh, that might be the title. <laughs> might, 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 might be the title of the episode. But, um, Malcolm, do you have any final questions? No, I think that that is an excellent point to end on. Uh, uh, but thank you so much, Hilda. <laughs> that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, really fantastic and uh, yeah, great. I now again. I say that I'm now saying this at the end of every single episode. You're not going to say the thing about your lectures. I need to all, go you, all, lectures. You, You've already said that earlier <laughs> in the podcast. Oh, thank you, guys. This has been a lot of fun. That yeah. was great. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And for the record, my lectures don't change ever after the first time I've written them. Just to counter that, Malcolm. But, uh, I know. Yeah. We, we, we'll I, be we back. Good, but we don't do it. Indeed, indeed. Uh, we'll be back next month then uh, with yet another podcast. So thanks again, listeners, for joining us. Thanks to Hilda. Thanks to Malcolm. And goodbye. Goodbye. Son of a gun. Song is